Hello and welcome. You found the Social Work Podcast. My name is Jonathan Singer, and I'll be your host as we explore all things social work. Hey there, podcast listeners. Jonathan here. Today is the first of a three-part series on the 2018 NASW Code of Ethics. In November 2017, I had a fabulous conversation with Alan Barsky, social work professor at Florida Atlantic and the chair of the NASW committee responsible for the 2018 revision. Now, you might remember Alan from episode 76 of the Social Work Podcast, when he talked about his relational model for ethical decision-making. Or episode 78, when we talked about how social workers can prepare for court. Today, Alan and I talked about several of the changes in section 1 of the NASW Code of Ethics, Ethical Responsibilities to Clients. Alan provided so much good information that I've divided our conversation into three parts. Some are hot topics that you might already have an opinion about, like whether you should get consent before doing a web search for information about your client, also known as Googling your client. And we talk about that in part one. Or removing the word disability from the code of ethics, which we talk about in part three. We also talked about some changes that you might not have thought about, like are online communities considered different cultures? And we talk about that in part two. Or how do you plan for disruptions in electronic services, which we talk about in part three? Should you sext with your client? I'm just kidding about that last one. No, but you knew that already. Hashtag boundary violation. But, and here's the important thing, in 2017, online boundary violations were not explicitly part of the Social Work Code of Ethics. It took the 2018 revision to get the Code of Ethics up to speed on that one. Which got me wondering, what else used to be missing from our Code of Ethics? Well, it turns out, a lot. So, before we hear from Alan, who, by the way, is not speaking on behalf of NASW for any of this conversation, I'm going to do a quick, not boring, look at the thrilling history of social work ethics, courtesy of Frederick Reamer's 2013 entry in the Encyclopedia of Social Work Online. All right, can I get a little background music for this? Okay, no, 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 not, not that. All right, here we go. 1946. What's missing? Everything. <laughs> There's no NASW, no Code of Ethics. 1947. The first Social Work Code of Ethics ratified by the American Association of Social Workers. That's right, American, not national. There's still no NASW. That's not going to happen until 1955. 1960. NASW was a thing, and it ratifies the first NASW Code of Ethics. Fourteen promises and proclamations like, I give precedence to my professional responsibility over my professional interests, and I respect the privacy of the people I serve. What's missing? Lots of things missing. Nothing unethical about clients and social workers getting jiggy. That's right. I just said getting jiggy. 
Also, nothing unethical about discriminating against clients based on the color of their skin, religion, sexual orientation, etc. 1967. The Code of Ethics added a pledge that social workers would not discriminate. Why 1967? Well, my take was that it's because it was in the middle of the Civil Rights Movement, the Women's Rights Movement, and on the cusp of the Gay Rights Movement. The Code of Ethics was responding to changes in ethical norms and standards. And while this was great, there was nothing in the Code that clearly spelled out if a social worker was acting unethically, something that consumers and social workers alike were asking for. Fast forward to 1979. NASW published a revised code of ethics that included six brief principles and, quote, standards for the enforcement of ethical practices among social workers. 1979 was the first time that the code of ethics included aspirational and baseline standards. One of the aspirational ideals was, quote, social workers should promote the general welfare of society. NASW included things that social workers should prevent, such as people practicing as social workers who are not qualified to be social workers, and things that social workers should not do, such as exploit clients for their personal advantage. It also added some very specific language, and this is one of those baseline standards, such as, quote, the social worker should under no circumstance engage in sexual activities with clients. So, 1979 marks the death of disco and the end of dating your clients. Thank you very much. The Code of Ethics didn't change for another 11 years. But during that time, the field of professional or practice ethics grew up within and outside of social work. The 1990 revision reflected this more nuanced understanding of practice ethics, it also reflected the rise in managed care and social workers entering into the field of private practice. The 1990 revision added several principles related to how social workers can get clients and how they could get paid for services. Three years later, in 1993, the code was revised to include language about avoiding dual relationships and language about social workers being impaired. The next major revision came in 1996. And this was a doozy. The 1996 revision included four major sections. The preamble, which provided for the first time a mission statement for the profession. The second section, called Purpose of the NASW Code of Ethics, provided an overview and brief guide for dealing with ethical dilemmas. The third section, Ethical Principles, outlined the six abstract principles that are near and dear to every social worker's heart. Service, social justice, dignity and worth of the person, importance of human relationships, integrity, and competence. The code provided a brief explanation of what each of these meant. And it was in the fourth section, Ethical Standards, that the code provided 155 standards in six categories, including social workers' ethical responsibility to clients, to colleagues, in practice settings, as professionals, to the profession, and to society at large. These were described as enforceable standards. And in his 2013 article, Frederick Reamer, who by the way, chaired the 1996 revision and was involved in the 2018 revision, noted that the code identified three different kinds of issues, mistakes, 
dilemmas, and misconduct. A mistake might be following agency protocol of having parents sign a release of information form, but accidentally having them sign the wrong form. A dilemma is just that. It's a situation in which the social worker has to make a decision about privileging one ethical principle or standard over another. A dilemma might be deciding whether or not your duty is to your client or to your agency or society, as is often the case in child maltreatment. Misconduct includes, you guessed it, (laughs) having sex with your client, or even getting to eat free at your client's restaurant, double billing. You know, the list goes on and on and on. And since 1996, there have been several updates to the code, most extensively in 2008 and again in 2017. Now, the 2018 Code of Ethics, which is what the 2017 revision is called, has 19 new clauses, but no new standards. Mostly the 2018 Code of Ethics reflects changes in technology and some changes that reflect shifting social norms and expectations. And what's missing from this version? Well, when you figure it out, let us know. Now, like I said earlier, this conversation is divided into three parts. Part one, that's today's episode, provides a historical overview of the NASW Code of Ethics and discusses why the NASW Code of Ethics was revised for 2018. Then Alan and I talk about Section 1.03, Informed Consent, and specifically Subsection I, which has to do with electronic searches. In part two, that's episode 114, we talk about section 1.04e, knowing the laws in your jurisdiction and the ones where your client lives and how that affects practicing across state lines with or without technology. We also talked about 1.05, cultural competence. In part three, that's episode 115, we talked about 1.06g, professional affiliations, and the removal of the word disability from the Code of Ethics. We talked about 1.15, disruption in electronic communications, and we ended part three with a discussion of resources for folks who want to learn more about the NASW Code of Ethics and ethical issues in social work practice. And now... Without further ado, on to episode 113 of the Social Work Podcast, the 2018 NASW Code of Ethics, Part 1, an interview with Alan Barsky. Alan, thank you so much for being back on the Social Work Podcast and talking with us again, this time about the 2018 revision of the NASW Code of Ethics. So what prompted the revision of the Code of Ethics Sure. So if you look at the history of the NASW Code of Ethics, the first Code of Ethics was in 1960, and it was just a one-page statement of general principles, and they actually asked people to hang that Code of Ethics uh, on their walls in a, in a frame, and a number of social workers today still remember doing that. The next major revision was uh, approximately 1979. Um, the 
most current version is really based on the 1996 version. And so that was a very major update that was uh, led by uh, Rick Reamer in terms of really identifying core values and principles and then being much more specific in terms of uh, what standards of practice there were. There were a lot of um, changes over the years in terms of uh, legal responsibilities and also the recognition of social work as a profession. So 1996 was the last very major uh, change. There were some minor changes in 1999 and 2008. And so what you might be recognizing is that uh, there are increments of uh, every three years, six years, or nine years, uh, we have the possibility of updating our code of ethics because NESW has its delegate assembly every three years. So about three years ago, there was a decision that um, the code really needed some updating in terms of technology issues. We had some uh, language in the code of ethics from 1996 that said things like if you're going to transmit uh, information electronically, you needed to delete or exclude any identifying information. And so that was back in the day when, you know, the latest and greatest technology was a fax machine. And so you just blot out the name of a client at the top of a file before you fax that information. Well, now, you know, there is so much electronic sharing of information with insurance companies and between providers and automatic access uh, of information to clients that the information in the uh, code of ethics was really uh, quite outdated. The other thing that happened uh, back in 2014, 2015, is the Association of Social Work Boards began a process of uh, developing practice uh, regulations, and this is for uh, regulatory bodies or the licensing bodies in uh, states, to look at how state legislation should be updated to take technology into account. And so um, they began that process, not even just uh, restricted to the United States, but they had international participants from uh, Europe and from Canada as well. And they invited some members of NASW and some of those members also became members of our uh, task force to update the NASW Code of Ethics. So um, there's a number of different processes that all came together around the same time. It sounds like it was uh, both procedural in the sense that NASW has a timeline for updating the Code of Ethics, but also it was prompted by um, a recognized shift in, in the practice landscape. Um, specifically around technology, but I, I, I assume there were other things that changed as well. Um, now, as, as I read through the, the 2018 Code of Ethics, it seemed like the basic structure and principles hadn't changed from that 1996 document, but that it was mostly the section that talks about the standards, right? The ethical standards where, where the majority of changes took place. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. So if you read the section on ethical principles, it's the same six uh, values and the same six ethical principles that were there before. We tried not to change the structure of the code very much because people are familiar with it and we didn't want people to um, have to make you know, major shifts. A lot of uh, states actually incorporate the code of ethics into their legislation, and so it's also got some legal issues to to it. So um, we did not uh, have the mandate to um, try to redraft or write the entire code. Um, when we talked about the basic principles, it wasn't as if there were any you know glaring issues that uh, we needed to change the language or change the the values of the principles. So uh, primarily, we were asked to uh, focus on technology. 
issues, but there were a number of other areas where there were some uh, needed updates, some of them just in terms of uh, language and didn't really have uh, a big impact on practice. You know, for instance, there was a reference to the uh, Committee on Inquiry from the NASW. Well, the Committee on Inquiry was changed to the National Ethics Committee a number of years ago, and we've nationalized and changed that process. So it's really just an updating of language, but it doesn't really affect people's practice. So, so there are just some text revision items in there, uh, as well as some actual additions for technology and some other things. Absolutely. Okay. Well, as a, as a as a practicing social worker, that's great to know that my basic understanding of the structure and the principles that social work ethics are based on has not changed. <laughs> exactly. So there's actually 19 new clauses within the code, but no actual new standards. So for instance, under informed consent, it's still the same basic standard, but we've added some additional uh, subsections to that. There are also 19 amendments to existing standards, but there, isn't, there aren't any completely new standards. So you mentioned informed consent, and one of the things that I saw when I was reading through there was um, informed consent in section 1.03, and then there's section I, and it talks about social workers should obtain client consent before conducting an electronic search on the client. Exceptions may arise when the search is for purpose of protecting the client or other people from serious, foreseeable, and imminent harm, or for other compelling professional reasons. Could you talk about this idea of attaining consent before conducting an electronic search? And then also that idea of what is a compelling professional reason? Excellent questions. So 1.03i is a subsection of 1.03. It's uh, still framed within the same parameters. And so the concept of informed consent, letting clients know the nature of our services, what we're planning to do with them, um, making sure that they have choices, that there are options, and making sure that they understand the risks and the benefits. All of that remains the same. Now, historically, we'd never think of uh, doing an online search because uh, Google and Bing and other electronic search engines didn't exist uh, when the uh, original codes of ethics were being developed. So if you want to look at a parallel, if I'm going to conduct an assessment with a client, I should let the client know what types of information I'm gathering. Am I going to meet with the uh, client in my office and ask them questions? Am I going to speak with their physician, with their doctor with their child's teacher. I wouldn't go talking to any of those people unless I'd had their consent first. Similarly, if I wanted to observe them at home or in the community, I would ask them for consent first. I wouldn't go over to someone's house and peer in the window to see what's going on or follow them around the public market to see what's going on with them unless I had their permission first. So similarly, even though there's a lot of public information out there about people, I wouldn't do an online search about a client unless I had their consent first. And so the basic uh, idea of uh, respect for clients and respect for their privacy is that we should have their permission before we gather certain types of information about them. And under 1.07a, uh, confidentiality and privacy, it even talks about the notion that we don't gather information about clients unless it's something that is uh, relevant to the type of work that we're doing with them. So some of it really just builds on the same types of principles. Um, now, 
there could be exceptions to doing online searches without client consent. So for example, if you had a situation where a client was uh, threatening other people and you needed to be able to contact them or you needed to be able to assess what the level of risk was, then it might be ethically justifiable to go online and to gather information to see what else is going on. Um, on their social networking sites or their specific threats? Are you able to identify the potential victims and be able to uh, warn those potential victims? So we didn't want to say that there was no reason for having um, an electronic search on a client um, without their permission, but there needed to be some uh, compelling professional reasons. Now, so certainly, uh, imminent ser serious harm to the client or others would be an example and we've got that sort of lack language as an exception to confidentiality so it should certainly be an exception here um, whatever other compelling professional reasons are really may depend on the uh, particular uh, circumstances so it may be for example that uh, you're a forensic social worker working with a criminal justice system and uh, the client is an involuntary client and as part of uh, your probation work or your corrections work you need to gather uh, some additional information online and there isn't a requirement or perhaps you're even legally authorized to gather information. Uh, child protection workers may also have the authority to gather certain information online about clients even though they don't have the client's consent. But that would depend on you know, state laws and uh, agency policies as well. I love the metaphor of looking through somebody's window. I don't know that I usually think about Google searches as looking through somebody's window. I sort of think about you know, if somebody has posted something online and it's public, or if their uh, Facebook page permissions are set to public, I sort of think about them as, as just sort of leaving things out on the street. But the way that you're framing it really says, this is somebody's private stuff, and you can have access to it, kind of like it's in their house, um, Facebook is their house. And then the public permissions means that the shades are are pulled back and you can look in. But there are ethical considerations about when and how you peer into that window. Even though you can, and even though the information is there, there's still an ethical responsibility for social workers to be conscientious and to, in this situation, obtain consent with a few exceptions from clients before peering into that window. Yeah, no, that's a great way that you've explained it. So, you know, physically and technically, it's possible to gather that information. Uh, there may be lo no laws from the general public to, you know, not look into other people's publicly posted Facebook uh, information or social networking information or online blogs or whatever, but we hold ourselves to a higher standard. So we are restricting our own civil rights when we step into that role. Also think about what you would do with the information that you've gathered. So I've gone around speaking to a number of different groups and some people would say, well, they go online to search about the client to see if they want to work with that client. That makes me really nervous about, well, who are they not serving because of they've, they've got some information from online? Are they doing racial profiling? Are they looking at uh, information that they could uh, discriminate against people? The information that's online may be information that is inaccurate. So, you know, you're not even giving the client the opportunity to respond to the information that's out there, and it could be inaccurate. You know, we've got all sorts of uh, 
fake news these days and people intentionally posting false information to mislead people. So I think we want to be really careful about it. So if you give the client the opportunity for informed consent, that gives them the possibility of saying, you know, I know there's some information out there or, you know, could you please show me the information that you're relying on and we can talk about it to see is it real or do I have a response to explain why that information may be out there and may be giving an inaccurate picture of me or my family or my friends, etc. Yes, because my my Facebook is a perfect reflection of who I am <laughs> and what my <laughs> life is. There's there's nothing filtered about that. Um, <laughs> and then you'd mentioned you know people could set their privacy settings uh, differently. A lot of times people are not really sure how to set their privacy settings appropriately, and sometimes the um, the systems intentionally you know try to encourage people to share information that they never had intention to share, right. or you post something on your closed. Facebook page, but a dear friend of yours decides to, to share it with the rest of the world. So, hmm. you know, in terms of levels of uh, informed consent and understanding what people are keeping private or intending to share, I think we have to look at uh, protecting people in, in their most vulnerable states. Yeah. And just to put a fine point on it, I think it's really uh, clarifying to say that, you know, even if your client is searching for you online, it doesn't mean that you can then search for your client. Right, because we're held to a higher standard. I've heard people say, well, they're going to look for me, so I should be able to do the same thing for them. Right. And you know, yeah. clients have a right to self-determination. Clients have a right to confidentiality. We as social workers don't. Uh, right. So it, is, it isn't a relationship that goes exactly the same both ways. We're not friends with our clients. We have a higher fiduciary duty. So we have some obligations to them that they don't have towards us. Uh, on the other hand, we may also be modeling some good pro-social behaviors. So um, maybe they will you know, follow some of our higher ideals and values. Hey there, podcast listeners. Okay, part one is done. Don't forget to listen to parts two and three of this conversation. In part two, Alan and I talk about section 1.04E, knowing the laws in your jurisdictions and and the ones where your client lives, and how that affects practicing across state lines with or without technology. We also talk about 1.05, cultural competence. And in part three, episode 115, we talk about 1.06G, professional affiliations, and the removal of the word disability from the code of ethics. We talk about 1.15, disruptions in electronic communications. And we end part three with a discussion about resources for folks who want to learn more. Thanks for listening. Keep up the good work. I'm Jonathan Singer, and thanks for being with me today for another episode of the Social Work Podcast. If you missed an episode or have suggestions for future episodes, please visit socialworkpodcast.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit our online store at cafepress.com slash swpodcast. To all the social workers out there, keep up the good work. We'll see you next time at the Social Work Podcast.